always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, would I want to go see this movie? Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So many kind words. Everybody who listened to the previous Cinephile, the interviews of Billy Bob Thornton and Miles Taylor, you're all very kind. You know, people think social media is just a place for anonymous trolls, but very kind of a lot of you to chime in with your thoughts. If you haven't listened, take a listen. Billy Bob uh, was very insightful and open and uh, generous with his time. Miles Teller, very funny. Uh, both of their films, Bad Santa 2 and Bleed for This, currently in theaters. I've been on a Billy Bob Thornton film festival the last couple of weeks, so I went back and watched The Man Who Wasn't There Again. Show the trailer to Stanzik. Stanzik agrees with me. It's in the trailer Hall of Fame. Like, I understand a 1940s-set film noir, but a barber is kind of a tough sell. But the trailer is outstanding. The trailer is great. I still haven't seen it, though. Yeah. But the trailer, it, it'll get you hooked. Monster's Ball. I forwarded through. I just wanted to watch Billy Bob scenes again. He's great. Uh, I watched A Simple Plan again. Stanzik, have you seen A Simple Plan? Okay, we've got to get you on A Simple Plan. I'll, I'll For Christmas, I'll buy you a DVD of A Simple Plan. Take care of it. Billy Bob Thornton, outstanding in that film. Coming up today, though, we're going to talk to an actor He's going to win an Oscar. Mahershala Ali is the frontrunner right now for Moonlight. He's a Critics' Choice Award nominee. He just won the New York Film Critics Award for Best Supporting Actor. He just won the L.A. Film Critics Award for Supporting Actor. He's about to be a Golden Globe nominee. I'm telling you right now, Moonlight, which I reviewed previously, it's a good movie. And what happens is this. You get these indie darlings. You know that the Hollywood is going to love a story like this, but a young black child told in three separate sections. They want to see a film like this scene. So you always get one representative who will be the champion for the film. Ergo, La La Land, probably going to win Best Picture. Damien Chazelle, probably going to win Best Director. He's the guy who did Whiplash. He's the director of La La Land. Actors, probably going to be Casey Affleck or Denzel for this movie, Fences. Actress is either going to be Emma Stone for La La Land or Natalie Portman for Jackie. Supporting actress, on lock, Viola Davis for Fences. So supporting actor, Mahershala Ali for Moonlight, he'll be the one representative of that movie. Go ahead, Sam. Hang on. My girl, Amy Adams, no chance for Best Actress a probable, in Arrival? Probable nomination. Not going to win, though. Not going to win. It's either going to be Emma Stone for La La Land or Natalie Portman for Jackie. But nomination coming for Arrival, and Arrival may sneak into the Best Picture race as well. So we're going to have Hirsch on a little bit later. If you haven't um, seen Moonlight, definitely go check it out. We're going to ask him about that. He's also done a, a bunch of other things. He was Emmy-nominated for House of Cards. Uh, he was in Luke Cage, which was a, a Netflix Marvel series. So really interesting guy, an actor on the rise. He's about to win some awards. So I can't wait to talk to him. Actor Showcase. <laughs> We've got some good ones here. Stanzik, we, we, we thought about going with Will Smith. We're going to save him for the next edition of Cinephile. Instead, um, we're going to go with Brad Pitt, one of your favorite actors of most, I was about to say most people, but definitely most women I know love Brad Pitt. And I would say a lot of guys like him too. His best movies, uh, streaming, we've got lots of great choices. And I can't wait for three words because one of my favorite actors, and particularly to describe, is Michael Shannon. I was so pleased that you picked out Michael Shannon. Like, that's – the three words was invented for Michael Shannon. Let the record show I have my own three words this time because I don't <laughs> trust you to do it accurately. So I'm excited for that one as well. Scorsese's story, all you got to know, thin and angry. That's all I can tell you about that. I'm not one prone to hyperbole. Stanzik knows this. I have seen the best picture of 2016. It is called Manchester by the Sea. Kenneth Lonergan is the writer and director. He did a film called You Can Count on Me, which came out at the turn of the century. It was the film that introduced all of us to Mark Ruffalo. He and Laura Linney played siblings in that human drama, exceptionally well written. He then did a movie, didn't make a movie for 11 years. Margaret was the last movie he did. I didn't see it, was not well received. 
And now Lonergan's made his third movie. It's a wintry tale about grief, and it's an extraordinary film. He doesn't work very much. He's a, he's a wonderful writer. He often does what's called a polish. So Lonergan's one of these guys, you know, you've got some big budget atrocity. You bring in Lonergan, he'll make it a lot better. Um, he was also, you know, he's in a lot of movies. If you look at credits, you'll often see his name. But, you know, he's known primarily for a playwright. Uh, this is Our Youth is one of his major plays. But he's he's coming back to form here. By the way, Ruffalo in You Can Count on Me, the early reviews were describing him as like a new Marlon Brando. Like, oh, my God, Mark Ruffalo is an ex-Marlon Brando. But it was only because his acting style was a lot like Brando and On the Waterfront, always kind of mumbling and kind of his features and his facial expressions, particularly in You Can Count on Me. You can see Ruffalo almost channeling Brando. Manchester by the Sea, though, stars Casey Affleck. As I said, it's either going to be him or Denzel who's going to win an Oscar for Best Actor. He's unbelievable. The basic story of it is this. He plays a guy who's a janitor, uh, wallowing in the muck, as it were, who gets a phone call. His brother, played by Kyle Chandler, suffers from congenital heart disease, goes to visit him in the hospital, and unfortunately he's passed away. So now he's left in the will, according to his brother, is that he's going to look after his nephew, played by Lucas Hedges, who's going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and uh, he's going to look after him. And Affleck is completely resistant to this idea. Because he's like, hang on a second, I've, I've got my own life over here in Boston. This is an hour and 40 away. I can't just move here, and, and I can't come back to this place. And the biggest reason why is because there's some demons and a tragedy that took place, and that movie lets you know what that is about halfway through the film. And credit to Lonergan, a lot of the movies shot in flashback. Stands like I'm not always crazy about flashback, because at times it can feel like a conceit. But in Manchester by the Sea, it works perfectly. You get information only in incremental bits. So Affleck's character seems kind of... Uh, distant, he's a mumbler, he's a little bit awkward, he's got some emotions there, you're not sure exactly why. So the movie draws you in, you have this major event happening involving his brother, he goes there, the relationship with his nephew starts to develop. You see in flashback his ex-wife, played by Michelle Williams, who's going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actress, uh, and then the event happens. And I will only say that Lonergan, again, does a masterful job in terms of writing, directing, editing, with letting this event unfold and then that's the fulcrum for the rest of the movie. Now you get why this character is like this, and the rest of the movie unfolds. If you're thinking right now, why do I want to watch a two-hour and 15-minute movie, which is an extraordinary testament to loss and grieving? No thanks. Here's the shocking part. One of the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, but he said this is easily the funniest movie about grief ever made. And that's the greatness of Lonergan. This is not a movie where you're going to go there and just hang your head for two hours, which I don't have a problem with those movies, for the record. I, I do like a great, sad movie. This is a great, sad movie, but there is tons of humor in there, and a lot of the humor is derived in the exchanges between Affleck and the teenage son. Just imagine what it would be like, all of a sudden, if you have a brother, and all of a sudden he passed, you got to look after his nephew. There's a different difference in relationship between your nephew, and all of a sudden you're looking after him as his guardian. Uh, and the, the humor that's played there, it is welcome, it is necessary, uh, it is accurate. Uh, you know, anybody who's ever gone any sort of tragedy or loss, within the sadness, there's always humor. There's, there's always it can be black humor at times, but there's always some lift that is needed. You know, amidst the awkwardness and the sadness and the rest of it. So, Manchester by the Sea, go check it out. Four Maple Leafs, fantastic movie. My only hesitation, I'm a little bit outstanding. Like all these Boston movies, I feel like they're just always hammering on the accent. Like there's one scene that the teenagers are talking about Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek. I'm like, why? Why do we always have these wintry? tales set in new england like conveniently with geography i get it because affleck's character is to drive up from boston but i i'd like something in, in minnesota i'd like something in the ozarks how about north dakota it's always boston yeah they're always playing hockey they're watching the red Sox and the celtics and the bruins on tv like there are other sports teams why can't he be a minnesota twins fan you know and i get it you're using the wintry landscape guess what 
Oklahoma is pretty cold, too. Why don't we sit in Oklahoma next time? We don't have to listen to these accents every time. The fighter, the departed, gone girl. I mean, not maybe not gone the girl. Town. The town. Yeah, okay, enough. Enough. With the, I got it. Boston. Got it. Gritty. Uh, very quickly, Casey Affleck, better actor than his brother. Here's the shock. If I said to Casey Affleck, what other movies would come to mind? Gone Baby Gone, and I don't know how much time we have, but I got plenty on it. I do love Gone Baby Gone. So he's got, he doesn't have the filmography of Ben, but whenever he's there, he's really good. I saw a movie called The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Exceptionally long title. What were the marketers thinking? But he's great in that, him and Brad Pitt. Um, so he hasn't done a lot, but he's excellent. And I think this role, particularly because Lonergan's writing is so good, Lonergan's going to win the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. It really fits him, right? Because Affleck's one of these guys. His voice is always kind of wavering. He's always kind of got that interesting look in his face. And, and the beauty of his acting is that it's all just submerged. You know, there's, there's this intensity behind him. I keep thinking about what Billy Bob said to us, that Duvall told him. There's a real difference between being subtle and being boring. And with Affleck, there's always something there churning in behind this mask of his face, behind the stoicism. There's something there lurking. And once you find out what the event is, then you go, ah, now it all makes sense. This is why this guy's like this. Go check out Manchester by the Sea. You're going to be hearing all about it. It's going to be win. It's going to be nominated for Best Picture at all those awards. And right now, I said, like I said, Casey Affleck's uh, going to be up for Best Actor, and may in fact win it against Denzel Washington. Although Sanzik loves Denzel, Fences is supposed to be spectacular. It's coming up at the end of the month. Next movie we're going to be reviewing here is Loving, and that's a story about interracial marriage. Uh, set back in 1958, Virginia, and it stars Joel Edgerton and Ruth Negga. Both of them are going to be surefire Oscar nominees for Best Actor and Best Actress. And the movie picks up immediately with her telling him that he's pregnant, that, that she's pregnant. First scene of the movie, boom. Like, oh, okay. And uh, he loves to race cars. They've seen them racing early on. And they're, they're, they're making out here hot and heavy, and you're going, wow, I PDA back in 1958, Virginia, I guess, wasn't an issue between a white man and a black woman. Like, you see a few kind of looks and stuff. I'm like, all right. And and the scenes that you'd expect, like where's the scene of her parents going, hey, you're not marrying a white guy, and more importantly, scenes of his mom saying, hey, you're not marrying a black woman. You don't get that. Like that, that's the real shock early on. You go, oh, I guess we're we're picking this relationship up when that stuff's already passed. If there was any friction, guess it's gone by now. You see him having dinner with his wife and and uh, her brothers and her parents and everything's all right. So I'm like, oh, that that's already a surprise. You go, okay, this this is where I thought this film was going, but that's not where it's going. They've got to get married. You can do so in D.C. So they go there, they get their marriage license, they come back. Then they're arrested. And they're arrested. To, the, the miscegenation law, just you know, basically, it's just saying you can't have the races mixing. But the, the laws that they're trying to say is you can't be together. So the judge says, all right, either you serve prison time here in Virginia or just move away and you can never come back again. So they say, all right, well, we're just going to have to move away. So they leave their families. Obviously, you know, her family's very distraught, upset at him. They go to D.C., start a new life together, have kids. He's got a job as a laborer. She works at home taking care of the family. She has family there in D.C. And it seems everything's fine. But then, of course, she has the pull of wanting to go back to see her family. But the whole thought is you can only go back if you're separate. And she wants to have the baby. So she goes back to have the baby. He's like, all right, I'll take you back. Cops find out they're there. Boom, arrested. Lawyer helps him out. Because, hey, listen, it was my fault. Because I, I, uh, it was actually my fault. I, I told them they could come back to Virginia just to have the baby. And now they're going to go to D.C. tomorrow morning. They'll never come back to the state. Totally my fault. By the way, the lawyer is the guy who played the cop in The Night Of. You just see him getting some more work. Remember him. He's great. So, he, so the afterwards, after the court hearing, they're like, hey, thanks so much. He's like, hey, don't come back. Seriously, you're not welcome here. If they find you again, you're going to put in prison. Simple. And even when they're being held in prison, like she's pregnant, they just could not be, you know, ruder or fiercer to her. They go back to D.C., live their new life, but eventually the poll becomes back. She wants to go back, wants to see her family, et cetera. So entering these lawyers who work with Robert F. Kennedy. 
And they're saying, we've heard about your case. We've heard about the fact that, you know, you, you, you were arrested on these laws and it's unethical. Now it's the early 60s. Now you're starting to feel the pull of civil rights. And Edgerton's great because, again, he's really subtle. He's immediately distrustful of anybody who's not his wife. He's got these very narrow, beady eyes, got the crew cut going. He really doesn't trust anybody. He's just this small, simple laborer who loves his wife, and that's it. So he doesn't like these lawyers getting involved and saying, we're going to take this to the Supreme Court. And and it's it's such a great scene because I'm like, that's what I would be thinking. I'm like, hey, can't you just talk to the judge? Like, just tell the judge to throw up the case. We're not going to cause any problems. I pay my taxes. We're not going to, you know, hey, we're not going to bother anybody. It's just me and my wife, and that's it. We're all good. And they're saying, no, we're going to challenge the Supreme Court. We're going to do this. He's like, hey, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want the hassle. I'm not trying to be a martyr. I'm not trying to be a symbol for people. Like, no, I just want to live with my wife and back and see my mom and, and have her with her family. I just, I'm tired of living in D.C. That's it. But she feels the pull. You can see it in her eyes. I say, no, no, we have to stand for something bigger than us. We have to now rise to the moment. We have to seize the moment. Uh, as far as finances are concerned, they're saying, no, we'll take this case on you know, for us and, and we'll go from there. So if you Google the move uh, – the story, you'll obviously see what happened. The, the reason that the title is actually that's their last name, Loving. And you'll see the case of Loving versus the Supreme Court and what happens. But Loving takes a lot of chances. Jeff Nichols, the director, I'll say this. It's definitely not going to be it for everybody. It's a very slow pace. It's very subtle. If you're picturing you know, a few good men type courtroom scenes of the Supreme Court where all of a sudden interracial marriage is allowed, you're going to be disappointed. It's very subtle. It's very insular. And it's just focusing on – the family. It's just focusing on him and her. And you, there's the one scene in the trailer. The lawyer says, hey, because they don't want to go to court. He goes, I don't, I don't have no interest in doing this, man. You want to do this? If this is going to make it easier for my wife, I'll do it. And he says, is there anything you'd like me to tell the judge? And he just kind of pauses. He goes, yeah, just, I mean, just tell him I love my wife. Like, it's as simple as that. So it's a very timely movie right now in light of uh, what's going on in our country in terms of race and uh, conversations about acceptance and such. So go check out Loving Three Maple Leafs. Like I said, not for everybody. I mean, it's definitely very slow and deliberate. You feel the two-hour running time. But surefire Oscar nominees, beautifully well-acted, and a really nice story. Quickly on Moana, kids' movie, bright, colorful. The music's fantastic. Lin-Manuel Miranda did it. Of course, you know him from Hamilton. Uh, particularly if you have a daughter or nieces, I would recommend it to. I took my two nieces to see it. They loved it. Uh, like I said, infectious music, bright, splashy, colorful, a heroine you can cheer for. You got Dwayne Johnson showing up. Anytime the rock's in, you're good. Uh, so if you, especially if you liked Frozen, this would be a kid's movie that would be perfect up your angle. I'm not surprised it's been number one at the box office the last couple of weeks, making a ton of money. So go check out Moana. I'll give that three Maple Leafs. And quickly, a movie that came out a year ago, it's called 45 Years. Charlotte Rampling was nominated for Best Actress. I'd like to point out, here with Loving, I'm talking about subtle movies. Manchester by the Sea, subtle, you know, quiet. Here's a movie that's subtle and quiet, Stanzik, but sometimes when critics say subtle and quiet, they just mean really boring. 45 years, that's how long this movie feels. The story is about a woman. Of course, it's always these English upper crust people. If they just, oh, you're, just, you're watching the movie. You're just, can, can we just get, can we get a car chase in here at some point? Like just something to pick the momentum up of this movie. Her and her husband have been married 45 years. Anniversary's coming. He's upset, gets a letter in the mail that this woman he was with long ago has died. She's like, all right, you know, what's the big deal? I get you're upset, whatever. He then discloses to her he was actually engaged to her. So now you start to see their marriage start to fracture a little bit because now she feels like he always wanted to be with this woman rather than be with her. 92 minutes later, there's no real resolution. You just see this marriage start to crumble. I'm like, see, these are the movies that when people hear art house movies, they go, yeah, that's the kind of crap I don't want to see. And she gets nominated for Best Actress. And I did not care for Joy. I didn't think Jennifer Lawrence should have been nominated. But after having seen 45 years, Jennifer Lawrence should have won the Oscar over Charlotte Rampling for 45 years. It's honestly one of those movies stands like, like, I don't know if your folks are into like Downton Abbey and stuff. Maybe Downton Abbey is a really good show, but it's one of those that I go, come on.
There's so many more other films to be seen. 45 years, I'm giving two Maple Leafs, despite the fact it probably has like a 90% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So all those who think I'm some sort of movie snob, trust me, I get annoyed with these upper crust movies myself. So go avoid 45 years. Special guest. Great to have Mahershala Ali joining us right now. If you haven't seen Moonlight, go see it. Mahershala is cleaning up right now. Critics' Choice Award nominee, winner of Best Supporting Actor, New York Film Critics, L.A. Film Critics. Thank you so much for coming on Cinephile, my man. And please, I know you're going to be humble. Start working on that Oscar speech. Let's go. <laughs> oh, brother. I'm just uh, – it, it, look, I, I embrace it. It's been um, a, a wonderful ride and – and just honestly, uh, when we went into to shooting it over a year ago now, just not something we any of us expected. We made that movie with a, a bag of nickels, and uh, it was one of the one of the lower end uh, on the lower end of films I, I, I've ever had an opportunity to do in terms of budget. But we were there for the right reasons, I think, and really put our, our heart and soul into it. And people are appreciating it, and I appreciate the recognition and all the, the positive things that have that have come along with it in, in the tailwind of the release uh, of the film. So it's, it's been good. It's a beautifully made film. And I think what here's the biggest key for me, Mahershala, for those who have not seen it yet, mm. is this because people are going, oh, wait, is that the gay black movie in three parts? Now nah, I'll pass. But that's mm. not what mm. it's about. It's about a no. child coming of age. It's about a your character yeah. playing a drug dealer is a mentor in a, in a vein, in a role you don't often see. It's a side of life right. you don't really see. So I think it's important people realize, hey, this isn't a movie uh, that you think is going to be tailored to one community. In fact, it's about tolerance right. and acceptance for all people. Right. Um, you know, it's funny because after, um, after the election, and I don't know how any particular individuals in your office and in your audience feel about that, but after the election, there's a lot of people who felt um, – who didn't feel represented and felt – you know, who were angry about how things went – and it's so interesting to me that uh, the box office went up 40% on like a Wednesday. Um, and it was in large part a response to people who didn't feel represented or didn't feel safe in, in some way, shape or form, finding that safe place, a place where they felt, felt uh, like where their tribe was, like they felt recognized somehow or something about Moonlight spoke to them where that's where they where there's a good portion of people went in order to um, to kind of like get away from it all. And I think in some ways what's interesting is that the film itself so focuses on on the other, the person outside of the tribe, the person who is not being embraced uh, by his peer group, who is persecuted in some ways and misunderstood but also uh, you get to experience seeing characters who usually are thought of in a one dimensional way as just the crackhead mom as just the drug dealer cousin or mentor or guy kind of on the corner. And, and he, um, he pierces through those stereotypes by really making these people human. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. Uh, Cause I, people see the film and I often I, I found myself a few times thanking them for enjoying it like we're just saying I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed it but as I've made that mistake a couple of times I realized that it's not really a film you enjoy but it's something that you just kind of experience so 
I think one of the best attributes you have as a, as an actor is that you're able to have tremendous presence, and you have all your characters always have this quiet dignity. You don't have to be saying a whole lot. You're holding the screen. You're commanding the screen. I think that's why audiences are loving this movie and why critics are praising it so thank much. Thank you, but you know what? I think the same thing of you on ESPN. Oh, thank you. Thank you, man. You know, I'll send a check to Salim because I know he's listening, my cousin who your boys met, so I'm sure he sent you up for that one. No, no. <laughs> no, but thank you, brother. Really, sincerely, thank you. Two scenes in particular in Moonlight, the one on the beach and another one at the dinner table scene. You're, you're conveying so much, but you're doing it in a real uh, minimal manner. What was it like yeah. acting against a boy who is so shy and so quiet in the film. How do you try to carry that in the movie? Well, I think the key is is sort of the flip side of what you said is is it acting with. And that's the thing with 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 um uh working with Alex or with any of I I've, I've grown up and I never quite understood it especially coming from the world of sports. I used to play basketball, play ball in college and whatnot and what what I always had a difficult time relating to was just this mentality of beating the other team or beating the other guy when I always thought it just made more sense to try to be your best self and work and almost work with your, with your group to be your collective best and whatever the score says, the, the score reads at the end of the whatever, 40 minutes or what have you. And so I think how I've taken that approach with acting is I try to just do my best work really connect to my character's deepest truth and, and try to allow that to move through me and working with someone like Alex, who is, is, is so new to it all, but so pure, pure and clearly talented that it was just about um, mutually and, and, and finding our rhythm together and just kind of locking in together and, and sort of being in sync. And if you do that, if you're able to sort of, listen with your being and not just with your ears that I, I think you tend to you tend to kind of hear what is what is necessary like you, you get you get directed you could just you, after a while it kind of really is a skill that develops where you where I believe you you kind of get directed by the environment in some way LA film critics love the movie uh, it was just named best picture Barry Jenkins the director best director as well like I said all the accolades for you it's awesome so thrilled for you. We're talking right now with Mahershala Ali, who is in Moonlight, also Emmy-nominated for House of Cards. And I think a lot of people love that show and your character in particular. What was that experience like for you? House of Cards was uh, was was great. It was a bit of a surprise, the way everything came together. Not, none of us knew what it was. Uh, I think what it had going for it from the jump was that um, – David Fincher was directing and I'd worked with David before. So, you know, it was pretty obvious to me how brilliant he, he was and, and the potential of the show because he was involved, but also Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. Um, and lastly, Bo Willeman, the creator. So I think as a group, if you're going to take a dive into launching online content and stream something, which was essentially unheard of at that time and put a hundred million dollars into the first two seasons of it. And it was greenlit from the jump. I was kind of all in. I was like, let's, let's give it a shot. And in, in doing it, it was, it was a, a pretty great experience. And um, the way the, the, the show hit, the way that, that character sort of took off for me. I, I know it just, it's changed. It changed a lot of things for me where um, I was somebody who, you know, did the best with every part I've, I've, I've been given and fortunate to have, but it was a show where the right people see, saw it. And, um, and so it led to 
to more um, fulfilling opportunities. And uh, so I just finished, I did my last season last year. And so I think it's, it's sort of responsible for uh, in some ways why everything is kind of happening the way it is right now, because now that I'm done off that show, it's opened up um, uh, sort of the calendar and, and given me the opportunity to do all these other wonderful projects. And one of those other projects is, of course, Luke Cage, the Netflix show, the Marvel series. It, it's interesting what Marvel's doing here, Marishla, because it's like they're taking these shows. That, I mean, we're, we are going well past those those bright, splashy mm-hmm. comics like Dick Tracy. Now, mm-hmm. now it's it's dark, mm-hmm. and we're going in, into territory that I think true comic book aficionados appreciate because it's it's true to the source mm-hmm. material. What was it like for you playing that villain? It was wonderful, but it was extraordinarily difficult at the same time. Um, they really wrote for me, and what I mean by that is um, it, he wasn't a character who was who was there to pass through. Um, he was there to to be featured and and really be the the leading force and and sort of pushing the narrative along um, on, on on the antagonist side. Uh, and so that was really wonderful to experience, having to to step into that responsibility um, and have conversations about uh, not, not so much the arc, but just little details that sort of fill out the character um, uh, and to have that sort of um, that, uh, that sort of input was, was amazing. What was difficult though was really, really difficult. um, And it took probably two months to three months to fill it was, um, look, when you, when you plan a character like that, who lives in such a heightened reality, but can justify what he's doing, he can justify his actions in his own mind. And and that's kind of your job as an actor is to, to not judge your character, but if anything, advocate for him and, and buy into what he's doing and why he's doing it for the period you're playing him. But when you do that, the energy of that, there's a real residual from that. Like when you are for eight hours in the day throwing somebody off of a roof and then you go off and you shoot somebody. But then later on you have an emotional scene because you found out that, that one of your old time pals you, has passed and you're sort of responsible for it. And what that does to you emotionally, you do that for day after day and you kind of string those days together. It's, it, it can be a little bit difficult to sleep at night. <laughs> energy <laughs> that you kind of begin to begin to uh, kind of take on and that kind of, it, that you that sort of lives within you for a period of time while you're carrying that along, uh, it, it becomes a challenge. But but it's sort of creatively toxic. But that's what you sign up for as an actor to kind of bring these characters to life in a certain way. So it just has residual. It has wear and tear on your body in the same way sports does. You you can go for 200 yards in a game, but there's going to be a real residual effect of that because you got beat up with those 30 carries, and uh, that's what happens in acting a little bit. Yeah, you mentioned not being able to sleep well at night, so that dovetails into what you mentioned earlier with the fact that uh, the president-elect, Donald Trump, has caused a lot of us to mm. be a little bit concerned. You and yeah. I both belong to the same community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Yeah. And um, yeah. what what is it like right now? I mean, listen, we may have to start registering together, which is such an insane idea to even <laughs> say out loud, but, but what has yeah. it been like for you personally, your family, as an actor, as a Muslim working in Hollywood? Hmm. Well, I think there's, Look, as an African-American growing up in the country, there's always been, there's these different degrees or shades of difficulty, right? Like, it's something that I've just grown up with. It's it's not something that that I'm not accustomed to, like what my parents came out of. My grandfather being president of the NAACP and certain local chapters of the Bay Area. So I've, I've, I've just grown up 
very much aware of, of people being or processing, dealing with, experiencing some some form of discrimination. Like that's never not happened to me. It's just a different layer of it. Speaking personally for me and my family, um, uh, it's just a different layer of it or an added layer um, after I converted to Islam and say the year and a half after that, when less than a year and a half, when uh, 9-11 happened and some of the reaction from that, which people don't realize, you know, for for a, a Muslim, an American Muslim, like 9-11 was extraordinarily difficult because one, you're an American and, and you see all these people who have, who have been killed for, for nothing. And then on top of that, you're, uh, you are Muslim and they and they, they did that claiming in the name of God or on behalf of Islam. And you know that that does not represent Islam, the tenets of Islam. Um, and, but, people don't know enough about it. So they kind of have, they kind of have no choice but to buy into that story and don't know that that is really, that is clearly not what Islam teaches in any way, shape or form. So you, uh, it, so I think that the pain that I, that I personally felt and, and there's, and not to try to create some hierarchy and suffering, but it's very difficult for, for Muslims who really, who, who have a, a, I would say a better grasp on the teachings. And I would say most Muslims do are really clear on the fact that, that those things are forbidden and looked down upon. There's no compulsion in the religion. There's no, um, you can't force anyone to convert. Um, you can't, you can't threaten people by the sword. You can't go off and commit suicide. You can't harm innocent people. Like all these things that we just know, um, when those, when those acts are perpetrated in the name of Islam, it's painful. And then it's also painful because you're, you're an American as well. And, um, so, uh, but yeah, so it's, it's been, it's been challenging and, you know, we, of course we have our concerns about, you know, what's going to happen going forward in the, in the next four years and, and whatnot. But I do believe the positive thing to me is that, um, the results of the election, I think it's woken a lot of people up and it's an opportunity for people of all faiths and creeds and colors um, to, to really come together and, and really work to uh, create a country that reflects what it should be on paper. Um, what though, uh, you know, we have all these wonderful documents that, that, that speak about these things about equality and, and, and human rights and, and, uh, and, and all these wonderful things. And, and hopefully I think, hopefully all those, those people who, who will come together, who, who really truly sincerely believe in those things and want all of us to be able to live and roam freely and, and, and have tolerance and, and love for each other in their own individual spaces and how our communities come together in some way, shape or form. Hopefully those people will rise up and in a way that, and, and kind of come together in order to to really create that world. Yeah, that is beautifully expressed, man. And, and particularly in, in your community, like I think the arts takes on such importance in times like this of uncertainty of upheaval. Mm-hmm. And particularly, as you mm-hmm. said, for African Americans, it's been it's been well documented. You know, the hashtag Oscar is so white. The last couple of years, mm-hmm. people feel like Selma should have been recognized, and and uh, mm-hmm. other films as well. And this year, you could have. 
yourself, you're going to get nominated for supporting actor Viola Davis for Fences, Denzel Washington for Fences. I mean, this could be a real strong statement. You really got that crystal ball going, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Goldderby.com is my spot. I'm telling you, man. Uh, I hear you. I hear you. So it could be a really strong stand. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's wonderful to see see the representation. Um, And I think to add to that, what I would love to see is, look, I grew up in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is extraordinarily diverse. I went to one of the most diverse. If I, I feel like when I was in high school, I went to Mount Eden High School. And I went to also I went to Hayward High, and I went to Mount Eden High School in Hayward. And I believe Mount Eden High School was the most diverse, racially diverse school in California when I was in high school, if I'm not mistaken. And so for me, I grew up around Samoan kids, Filipino kids, obviously black kids, white kids, you know, Asian, Latino. So I would love to see, as we move forward, stories that really organically mix the races in general in a way that is not a, a Benetton ad, but in a way that just feels organic to, to some of our upbringings where we grew up around different communities uh, of people. And, 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 and I would love to see Blacks and Latinos and Asians and whatnot be able to to be the leads in some of these stories as well when when race is not the the driving point of the story in, in some way shape or form so hopefully there this is the beginning of of like a real sustainable change i think if you're if you're going to think about diversity and 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 put people in a position of, of to enfranchise communities in some ways i think this is the best time for that to happen because there's more content right now than there's ever been before with all the networks and streaming content the independent films and whatnot. So I, I think this is a really good time to continue to, to, to move in that direction. Last one for you, man. I always find it funny. Whenever we talk to actors, I just want to talk movies, and they just want to talk sports. So when, when Billy mm. Bob Thornton was here, he's a huge St. Louis Cardinals fan. He wanted to talk yeah. Arkansas Razorbacks football. I know that you're an athlete growing up playing ball. Mm. Um, tell me mm. about that journey, because you always be an athlete, right? Played, mm. played college basketball, played against Jason Kidd, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, I, I played with and against Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd and I were on a team uh, uh, that went to the John Farrell tournament. I mean, I'm going to date myself, but 91, we were playing together. Then um, we played against each other in college. Um, uh, he was at Cal. I was at St. Mary's College. Um, they gave it to us pretty good in the in the Oakland Coliseum. <laughs> but um, but I played with I, would, I played with Jason. I played against Steve Nash for four years because I was at um, St. Mary's College. He was at Santa Clara, so that was our rival. Um, but yeah, um, it was it was a good. It, I think that looking back, basketball got me where I was supposed to be. You know, I got a I got a scholarship, and so I didn't have to pay to go to pay to go to school for undergrad at least. And um, and I think what I learned about my experience, and I learned several things, and all of which I'm grateful for. But um, I think in getting there, I learned a little bit about goals, about setting realistic goals. Like, um, look, I could be, especially then, I could be four or five, ten years into the future, and constantly imagining what I wanted to do, and so started putting my energies in the moment in that direction to try to sort of achieve that. And I think. I was so focused and so many of us coming out of Hayward were really focused on, on sports and basketball and getting scholarships because there were so many talented guys coming out of that area at that time. And I think once I got the scholarship, I didn't set another realistic goal. I didn't quite understand how to improve myself so that I could 
actually really go to the next level in some capacity, even if that really meant overseas or what have you, because I had the athletic talent to do it. I could jump out the gym and kind of defend anyone, but there were other things that for my size at that time, I really needed to become a point guard, a true point guard. And I didn't know how to put the work in to do that. And then also, lastly, I will say that I just experienced uh, uh, playing under a coach who was in his forties at that time, uh, and really trying to sort of finding himself, and now I understand it much better and respect it in a different way, but found himself sort of in his kind of on his ambitious wave and trying to get to the next, trying to keep his job, but also get to the next level and follow his dreams of, of I think, coaching on, on a major Division One level because we were a, a mid-major, D, a, a mid-major D1. So... Um, it, it just sort of hit me to the business of college athletics in that you kind of sold on this kind of brotherhood and, and that, you know, we kind of take care of you and look out for you when experience it on experiencing it in real time. It, I just kind of was hit to the harsh realities of guys kind of sort of getting cut or shelved if they weren't playing up to what the coaches believe their capacity was or whatnot. And, but I will say, my closest friends to, th- to this day are from my experiences at, at St. Mary's 20 years ago. And it's also how I got into acting was there. So I had a wonderful experience all in all. And I'm appreciative of every single lesson that I got, um, whether they felt positive at the time or somewhat negative or challenging at the time that I needed those lessons. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I'm grateful for the experience as a whole. No, it's obviously worked out so well for you. One other thought I once wanted to throw a movie that I don't know how many people have talked to you about, but I thought you were great in it, and it was an under-the-radar indie, The Place Beyond the Pines. Mm. Terrific. Oh, wow. You, thank even, you. Thank you, you. You, even Mendez, Ryan Gosling. But settle this up for me, Mahershala. You, you could beat up Ryan Gosling in real life, right? <laughs> Ryan, it's funny. Ryan, he's a pretty tough guy. Like, I, I look, I don't know who would win, but I know he... He wouldn't. Uh, Ryan's no chump. He 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 he'd be ready to go, like for sure. But uh, yeah, we we'll see. Maybe we can uh, maybe we can talk to to Dana White or somebody <laughs> like that and, and set something up for charity. I think that would be awesome. Uh, seriously, on an acting yeah. point, the, the success you're having with Moonlight, I hope to now next to you, leading man type role. To me, that's the next frontier. You, a guy like yourself, I think that's going to be the next challenge. Uh, thank you so much for coming on Cinephile. And thank hopefully, you for having me. We'll buddy. hang in San Jose one of these days. I, I look forward to it. Actor Showcase. We have to quickly mention in terms of actors, Stan's, we've been trying to do this for months, Brian, uh, Brian Cranston's book. We, we still have not mentioned this, so I just want to mention really briefly before talking about Brad Pitt and his best movies, talk about a great actor, Brian Cranston. We'll do his top five another time, although he, of course, does not have the uh, filmography of many of the other actors that we normally discuss. But here's something that's really interesting about his book. Go check it out if you haven't had a chance to read it yet. Uh, if you love Breaking Bad, I would say it's 300 pages or so, and I would say the last third is all Breaking Bad stories. So from, like, page 200 on, I'm like, all right, now I'm really hooked for the Breaking Bad stories. But interesting stories about his life and uh, his... Dad was an actor, an absentee father, always chasing the dream, wasn't content with making small projects, always wanted to hit it big. If he didn't hit a home run, he always felt like he was a failure. So uh, unique circumstances there, relationship with him and his brother, uh, early acting, you know, how he got Malcolm in the Middle, so on and so forth. 
he's obviously a very perceptive, insightful guy. I like the stories about uh, acting for the stage, how challenged he felt about doing all the way, that panic he felt that there's no way I can get this character right. There's too many lines to study. You know, the fact he just gave up eating carbs for like two weeks, he just kept working on the story. It's really fascinating, the actor's life. But here's something I just want to touch on here for, for movie people and for cinephiles. Whenever he gets a role now, because you imagine Cranston's getting bombarded with scripts all the time. Three-time Emmy Award winner for Breaking Bad. Here's what he gets. He ranks the films in these categories. Story, text, cast, director, role, and time. Story, text, cast, director, role, and time. And ranks on a scale of one to five. So, for example, All the Way was a 20. Absolute no-brainer he had to do it. Uh, Argo was a 19. Trumbo was 17. The Infiltrator is 16. Now, all these movies I liked, I actually like The Infiltrator a little bit more than Trumbo. But I found that fascinating because I often wonder, how do these great actors, they get hundreds of scripts dancing. How do you filter through them? I think that's a very simple, unique way that he does it. And the best part is money was not one of the items listed. Great point. Story, text, cast, director, role, and time. As he said, he goes, now with money, like, you know, I have enough. I've been fortunate enough. I know what it was like to not have money. I now know what it's like to have money. It's great. He said he met De Niro at a Rangers game. They, they take you down into a room like in the intermissions because they know you'll just get besieged by fans. So he went up to him and just said hello. And then he said to De Niro, he goes, you know, you're always working. Like, what, what's that about? Like, you're just legendary actor who's working. And De Niro goes, honestly, and this is the truest thing I've ever heard about anybody who's a so-called workaholic. De Niro looked at Brian Cranston and said, honestly, I just feel more comfortable when I'm working. Like, how simple is that? He's like, he's Robert De Niro. He can't just go out and have lunch somewhere at a midtown eatery. Like, I just feel more comfortable when I'm working. It's a good script. I go out there. I enjoy acting. I can still do it. It's good money. Go get it done. There's a great story in there, too, about how he got the job on Breaking Bad. Having worked with Vince Gilligan before, nobody wanted him because it's like, we're not taking this clumsy dad from Malcolm in the Middle and turning him into this drug dealer. <laughs> right. But he had worked with him on a previous episode of The X-Files. Right. And Gilligan remembered him and was like, that's my guy. Yeah. You always hear about those breaks, and that's what you're like for an actor. Just some... Some role in one scene. I've never seen that X-Files episode. I heard he's great on that one. Apparently, if the speed goes up at a certain limit, his head blows off. And he's like this vile racist. So you're right. That that allowed Gilgan to show, no, no, I know he has this side to him to play somebody who's a lot darker than what you see as his dad who's always in the tidy whities Brad Pitt, best movies. Honorable mentions. Van Pelt's going to be upset. He loves Snatch. Might be Van Pelt's favorite movie. Unfortunately, he's missing the cut. True Romance, he's great. And he plays a drug dealer. Small role. California, I haven't seen it in like 20 years. Played a serial killer. It's really good. I just haven't seen it long enough to really kind of remember it uh, with lucidity. But here we go. Number five, Moneyball. Great leading man role. Billy Bean, by the way, tells everybody, look at how hot I am. They had to get Brad Pitt to play me in a movie. The best movie ever made about a baseball general manager. Can't wait for the uh, Omar Minaya story one day, perhaps. But Moneyball number five. Pitt's great. I mean, talk about making a movie accessible, which is about baseball and analytics, but making a crowd-placing story. He nails it. He has that leading guy charm and plays Billy Bean expertly. Number four, 12 Monkeys. Uh, was nominated for an Oscar for this one. Just weird, creepy. Uh, you can tell as an actor, he seems to be having a ton of fun working with Terry Gilliam, a director that allows his actors to take chances, and Pitt takes chances here, mumbling kind of with those uh, unnerving eyes, always kind of creepy. Great in that. Number three is Seven. Love this movie. Excellent serial killer movie. Uh, David Fincher directed it. The chemistry between Pitt and Morgan Freeman, some of the best acting of Brad Pitt's career is the last scene, although it is often parodied. What's in the box? What's in the box? It is great acting, though. Just on its own, it's kind of funny. What's in the box? Uh, number two is Inglorious Bastards. Hilarious role. That shows his humor and his drama. Uh, 
Pitt and Tarantino have to work together again soon. I would think they, they had a really good time on Inglorious Bastards and a project that fit both of them. And number one, Fight Club. Iconic performance, great role. Can't imagine another actor playing as well as he did. What would Tyler Durden do? Fight Club. Number one, Stanzik applauding the first time you've really liked my. You list. nailed it. I'm so, I'm so happy. If you didn't have Fight Club number one, I was, if it, you did like the Curious Case of Benjamin no, Button, no, I would have no, turned no, the mic off. No. We would have shut this podcast down. That's another one of those critical darlings that I did not care for. I watched the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I said this is a curious case of a movie that critics seem to have jumped on it. I have zero interest in watching. Boring and slow and just maudlin. Number one, Fight Club. Let us know what you think. As always, you can tweet me. Adnan ESPN if you didn't like my Brad Pitt movies. All right. Streaming? Three words. We're, we're rolling. Streaming suggestions. A few recommendations here for you on Amazon Prime, The Fighter. I mentioned earlier I'm tired of all these Boston movies, but it was a really good boxing tale from David O. Russell. Christian Bale won an Oscar supporting actor. I did think, Stanzik, you may disagree with me on this. I actually thought early on he was overacting, overplaying the googly eyes, the mannerisms, but Bale's performance got better later on. I think when you play a role like that, the drug-addled brother, there's a tendency to get a little bit too into the character. It's almost a little too over the top because Wahlberg, I felt bad for. He's the only guy that didn't get nominated because he's the most normal role. Melissa Leo is the mother. She's harried and, and has all these issues. She wins an Oscar for it. Uh, Amy Adams is nominated as well. And Bale, I thought, was really good. But I, when people go, oh, that was one of the greatest acting performances I've ever seen, I'm like, hmm. He was really good in there. But I thought the first 10, first, go back and watch the first 10, 15 minutes of Bale. And it's a little bit, the mannerisms I thought were a little bit off-putting, but he got better as the movie went on. Check out The Fighter. That's really good. Love the soundtrack, by the way. How do you like me now? What a great song. Really fits that movie. The Lobster, which was came out earlier this year, a really black comedy. Me and Rosilla really enjoyed that. Particularly, I think the first hour is outstanding. I'd give the first hour four Maple Leafs. The second, I think, falls off considerably. It's like a two and a half Maple Leafs. Overall, it's over three. But really funny, deadpan comedy. If you like Stanley Kubrick, Shades of Kubrick, all over the place. Colin Farrell, very funny, along with John C. Riley. And currently streaming on Hulu, Private Parts, the great Paul Giamatti. Howard Stern said he should have been nominated for supporting actor. I agree. He's so funny as pig vomit. Go check out an early Giamatti classic, WNBC. Pulp Fiction, if you haven't seen it for some reason, I meet people occasionally that just blow my mind. They go, I still haven't seen Pulp Fiction. You haven't seen it? It's on Hulu. It's amazing. It's amazing. Changed cinema. It was all about the independent movies. It made Tarantino's career. Brought back John Travolta from the dead. Sam Jackson should have won an Oscar for supporting actor. Lost to Martin Landau for Ed Wood. Uma Thurman's never been better. Hundreds of reasons to go watch Pulp Fiction. You haven't seen it. And a good compendium. Along with that is Reservoir Dogs. Tarantino's first movie. Sometimes it gets lost in the mix. But amazing dialogue. So funny. And, and great cast. Steve Buscemi is Mr. Pink. My particular favorite. But Michael Madsen's awesome as Mr. Orange. Tim, uh, excuse me, Tim Roth is Mr. Orange. Michael Madsen, uh, great in the movie as well. You're going to bark all day, little dog, or are you going to bite? They're just they're cutting a guy's ear off. I mean, just that's all I need to tell you. Go watch the movie. Sling Blade recently had Billy Bob Thornton on. I watched it again. It is a little slow. I mean, it's, it's a parable about good and evil. And as Billy Bob said, you feel the two-hour, ten-minute running time, but it's meant to be a slow burn. That's what I like about that movie. Uh, and that character is just so memorable and so unique. John Ritter, fantastic. Uh, really good movie, Sling Blade. Really sweet. Truman Show, uh, very much ahead of its time. Came out in 1998. Jim Carrey predicted the future, how reality TV would be so important. Uh, I would think it's, it's uh, Jim Carrey's best dramatic role. I don't know his best movie because he's had so many great comedies. Liar, Liar, and uh, Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, all that kind of stuff. But Truman Show, he's great in. Ed Harris uh, plays the bad guy, so to speak. Um, 
I really liked it. Directed by Peter Weir. Good director. Also did Witness. And Usual Suspects. Again, this blows my mind. People say they haven't seen it. Go watch Usual Suspects. It's on Hulu. Terrific crime thriller. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie wrote the script. Won an Oscar for it. Kevin Spacey. Amazing as Kaiser Sose. Go check it out. Actors in three words. The Michael Shannon I can't wait for. We'll do him last. Give me the first one, Stanzik. Jeff Bridges. I love Jeff Bridges. Just listen to his podcast, by the way, with Scott Feinberg. He's going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Hell or High Water. First word is the dude, of course. That's the easiest one you've ever given me. Number two is laconic. You know, he's this guy. He always plays these characters from the South and, like, you know, these Texas cowboys, cattle ranchers, et cetera. But he's actually from Los Angeles. I'm just – he always strikes me as one of these guys who's, like, born in a cowboy hat. But he's actually – not like that, but I feel he's always laconic. The third word is weed. In the interview with Scott Feinberg, he asked him, how would you prefer for the Big Lebowski? He goes, you know what? The biggest thing I did was not smoke weed for the entire duration of the movie. He said, what does that mean? He goes, because the script was so strange and so bizarre. I said, if I'm smoking weed, either during the shoot or after the shoot, I might kind of lose sensibilities here. He also, in an Entertainment Weekly interview I read years ago, he said to the writer, hey, can you not put in the fact that I'm smoking weed? The writer goes, are you sure? He goes, okay, it's fine. Go ahead, put it in there. So I think of weed when I think of Jeff Bridges. All right, you nailed that one. I'm proud of you. I quickly just wrote the dude abides, and we're good. Yeah. Uh, Emma Stone. Red. First word that comes to mind. <laughs> you know, okay. Raspy. Raspy voice. Like, for a woman her age, very raspy. Every time you see Emma Stone, God, she's red, she's raspy, and she's bubbly. Always a bubbly Yeah, does person. anyone not like her? I don't think so. Very likable. Red, bubbly. And she works with Gosling a lot. Yes, her and Gosling, great chemistry. you got to wonder if they're going to get hits one day. I guess he's with Eva Mendez for two kids. We're what? Let's move on. What are you doing? Uh, Kyle Chandler. Great in Manchester by the Sea. First word is dad, because he just, he's just a great dad. I mean, Friday Night Lights, I never watched the show, but obviously I'm familiar with it. He's a great dad. Just as a dad face, seems like a sweet dad, loyal. Uh, the second one is reliable. That dovetails with dad, but in Manchester by the Sea particularly, you see he's a a very reliable kind of actor. And the third is Yacht. He has that great scene in Wolf of Wall Street on the yacht with DiCaprio. They go back and forth. It's actually my favorite scene of Wolf of Wall Street because Scorsese can always get rather flamboyant with his directing. It's all medium, medium shots, back and forth, back and forth, close-ups. And they're just kind of start to outdoing each other. And eventually Leo just loses it and starts throwing money at him. He doesn't care. But I love that scene on the yacht. Real good duel between two good actors. I'm telling you, I put the pressure on you, and yeah. you, you're really bringing it today. Because yes, normally you're just whiffing on these. Well, but you're, you're three for three so far, but for all the Friday Night Light fans out there, yeah. it's clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Is that what he tells? That's the, like the, the last thing he says to the team before they, like the one, two, three huddle. Oh, okay. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Oh, that's pretty good. I like okay. that. I like that. Uh, Kira Knightley. British, scrawny, and underbite. Okay. <laughs> I wrote down British, skeletal. Yeah, yeah. She yeah, is yeah. really, like, really skinny. Let me tell you something. When people see someone, an actress, they go, she's really skinny. You see them in person, they're twice as skinny. Like Jennifer Garner, Joy Galloway's seen her before. He's like, dude, you should see her in person. She is nothing. It's all bones. So if Kira Knightley to you and me seems thin, in person, it's, like you said, skeletal. And then the last one I had was lyrical. Because she's been on Broadway now, and she oh, was in okay. that movie Born Again with Ruffalo, who you referenced earlier. Have yeah, you seen yeah. it? I haven't and seen Adam it. And Adam Levine. I, I enjoyed it. Born Again. Okay. Yeah. Lyrical. I like that one. And it's go time. Michael <laughs> Shannon. This is my favorite one. Like, people that want – if ever you meet someone standing, they go, what kind of movies is Adam in? Like, you could just say anything with Michael Shannon, I bet you he really likes. Like, any, any kind of Michael Shannon movie, I bet you Adam in really just likes it. Number one is Unhinged. 
Like, if you go watch Revolutionary Road, it's amazing in that movie. Kathy Bates keeps saying, he's not well, he's not well. Just insulting DiCaprio, just making fun of Kate Winslet. He's just unhinged. The second word is creepy. I have a friend who saw him. Claire Atkins is a producer. She saw Michael Shannon on the streets of New York walking. She goes, he's just a creepy-looking guy. He's brilliant. And number three is Scene Stealer. He's one of these guys, supporting actor, every movie you go, hey, Michael Shannon's awesome. 99 Homes, movie was all right. Guess what's the best part of it? Michael Shannon, unbelievable. Revolutionary Road, a little slow. Michael Shannon, unbelievable. Nocturnal Animals is a new movie written and directed by Tom Ford. Shannon's in it. Haven't seen it yet. Guess what? He's a scene stealer. He's going to get nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And one more word I should add is political. Because he talked about the whole with Trump now being elected president. And he said, because somebody said to him, well, listen, it's not a lot of young people. It's all their parents. He goes, well, you know what? Now you're an orphan because you should go to hell with your parents if they voted for Trump. So he's also wow. wading into the political spectrum. Okay, you forgot one word and one word only. No. You've been crushing it. Eyebrows. Eyebrows. <laughs> That's it. All right. Unhinged, creepy scene stealer will also add eyebrows. A Scorsese story. We are counting down the days until silence. It is coming out December 23rd. The raves are coming. And I mentioned earlier at the top all those Oscar picks. Uh, this is the situation over on Gold Derby where I have my selections along with the other Oscars experts. Nobody's seen silence yet. So right now we're, we have it in the mix. Um, if La La Land doesn't win Best Picture, Moonlight is in the mix. Silence is going to be in the mix. I mean, the early buzz, and really nobody's seen it. Marty screened it for the Vatican. Like he showed it to the Pope is that it's amazing, but we just haven't seen it yet. So, again, I cannot wait for silence on the next podcast. Again, I'll probably have to wait to still see it because they're not showing it in advanced previews. But December 23rd for his next movie. For a guy, though, who's made a lot of serious films, he has a great sense of humor. I once interviewed Mark Wahlberg on ESPN Radio. I said, give me something on Scorsese. Nobody knows unless you work for me. Because you know what, man? He's really funny, and he loves to laugh. He's got a really sick sense of humor. I said, do tell. And Wahlberg said, well, all the scenes in The Departed where Nicholson's just being a freak and weird and just overloaded with violence. He was like, Marty be laughing his head off. He goes, he's just, he's just kind of a guy who, who likes to laugh a lot. I don't think people understand that. In that vein, Albert Brooks, who worked with Marty on Taxi Driver, Albert Brooks tells the story great. He said, you know, Scorsese in those days, it was 1976 the movie was made. They shot it in, in 75. He said he didn't sleep much. So he goes, I, I, I was always in a car. We'd pick Marty up in the morning. So what happened is he goes, Albert Brooks says, I would get up. You've forgotten Albert Brooks is uh, in the movie. He plays the guy who works for Senator Palantine. He's in all the scenes of Civil Shepherd. Paul Schrader said he's invaluable to the movie because he said, the only character I couldn't really write well was that guy. He just seemed so boring to me. Because think about how weird that was for me. I could write the, the homicidal cabbie. I could write the pimp, no problem. But I couldn't find the normal working stiff who works nine to five in a politician's office. Trader goes, I just couldn't find that character. And because that's how great Marty is. The most boring character, he cast a comedian. He put Albert Brooks in the movie. And all of a sudden, he's actually really funny in Taxi Driver. He takes a bland guy and gives a personality. Regardless, Brooks would go there, and he said every time he'd buzz up to get Marty, be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And Marty would always be freaking out. He goes, okay, because I guess he stayed up all night watching all these old movies and storyboarding. So he goes, every morning at 7, 8 a.m., Marty would always be freaking out. So I thought I've got to get him back one day for the fact that he was always late and always just freaking out the last minute. He said, I want to cast him in one of my movies. So uh, he did a movie called The Muse, which is all right. I mean, I think Albert Brooks is really funny, and he's made better movies. But I, I do like uh, The Muse. It has its charms. Sharon Stone plays a woman who – all these creative artists go to her, and she can all of a sudden make their, their artistic impulses come to life. So one scene, Albert Brooks sees Scorsese knocking on the door, and Marty comes down. And Google the scene. Go, you don't have to watch the whole music. Just Google Scorsese in the Muse. 
Because he starts to ask me how Brooks where she is, whatever, and he goes, okay, I'm, I'm actually working on a remake of Raging Bull. And Albert Brooks says, really? Because yeah, but it's a real thin guy. Real thin. He goes, really? Because yeah, thin, but angry. Thin and angry. Thin and angry. Thin and angry. He goes, do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? <laughs> Such a great scene. If we ever get Marty on Cinephile Stancing, I'm going to start with that. Just thin and angry. Thin and angry. Thin and angry. And then he walks away and he goes, we never had this conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He goes, hey, did you ever get a script I sent you, Marty? He's like, we never had this conversation. I'm out of here right now. Hey, get a Starbucks around here. I think you've had your caffeine for the day, Marty. Thin and angry. Hungry, a remake of Raging Bull, but a really thin guy. Really thin, like a really thin, but angry still. <laughs> Such a funny clip. He's the best. Thank you so much to Mahershala Ali and uh, my man Stanzik, as always. Thank you for listening to Cinephile. We'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Ferk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.